Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending October 13th, 2023. This week, Marvel finally learns how television works. I'm Kim Hollis, who always reads David's intro correctly every single week. (laughs) That's not what David wrote. With me are Tim Brighty, content creator and gamer and new speaker of the house. Congrats, Tim. Oh, thanks. I mean, if no one else wants the job and you don't have to be a member of the house representatives to to do that. So sure, I'll take it. Yeah, why not? Also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride and streaming media analyst who adores the absurdity of incongruous math that drives baseball outcomes. We're still the better team, but in a small sample size, we're not the better team. That's life. And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burriel, who thinks he can score on Deion Sanders' Colorado Buffaloes. I can barely run 10 yards, but give me the ball. I got this. (laughs) Coach Prime forgot about defense. I don't know. Something about being in Colorado, I guess. This week, Marvel just took an etch-a-sketch to its entire television process. The men in black would like you to stare at the neuralizer. David, if you can remember, what just happened? I guess Marvel listens to our podcast. Um, I don't know whether that's ego or not on our part, but something we've said a couple of times in the past three months just became the new Marvel law of the land, and that's not really a joke. Um, They were filming Daredevil before the start of the the actor's strike. And so what happened was they filmed, depending on who you believe, they filmed between six and nine episodes of Daredevil Born Again, which was intended to be the new reboot of the previous Netflix series. They've specifically said it's not a continuation. They've said they're starting from scratch. This is going to be one that exists in the MCU. They set the table for this. They had Matt Murdock appear in Spider-Man No Way Home. And then they had him appear again as Daredevil in She-Hulk. They had Vincent D'Onofrio appears as Kingpin at the end of the Hawkeye television series. They have shown throughout, hey, this character exists in the MCU, and now we're going to tell the story over an 18-episode series, which is the longest order they've ever had for a Marvel series. But then the strike happened, and Kevin Feige started watching all the footage of it, and basically he did the same thing that Kim and I have been doing with Secret Invasion, where he went, what the hell is this crap? Because it apparently is crap. So what happened was the people who wrote the series got promoted quote, unquote, where they're now executive producers, which is the Hollywood term for fired. They got promoted (laughs) so that they have no control whatsoever over the additional production. And oh, by the way, Marvel went ahead and released all the directors from their contracts, which means they'll probably get paid for it, but they will have nothing to do with the episodes of Born Again that have not been filmed yet. This is a small step in a much bigger thing. Kim, what was the problem we had with Secret Invasion, just generally speaking? It was not cohesive. It felt like there was all kinds of disastrous things that happened on the shoot that led to just all kinds of inconsistent storytelling. Absolutely, yes. It didn't flow well. The parts and pieces didn't match well together. There was a character who was killed in an episode, and that character had had no dialogue before that scene. That's a real thing that happened. And it's Tony Curran, who is an actor people know. So obviously the whole thing was a mess. Well, that mess cost them more than $30 million an episode. And a comment we made on this podcast a couple of months ago is it's like manufacturing. One of the things you have to understand when you're producing something is the first one you 
you create is always the most expensive. The prototype is where you sink most of your money. When you start mass producing the product, the price drops precipitously. Marvel's entire model to this point has been six to nine episode series, not seasons, series. In fact, until two weeks ago, there had never been a season two episode of any Marvel television show on Disney+. Plus, Marvel just trashed that completely. That is no longer their philosophy moving forward. From this point on, we will get multiple seasons of every Marvel series. Limited run series are done. Marvel has accepted the fact that their financial model wasn't working and it wasn't smart. Marvel was trying to create Marvel television the same way it creates Marvel movies. Well, the thing about television is it's existed for, you know, a century now. Over the years, people have figured out smart ways to make television. It was actually ego on the part of Marvel to turn around and say, hey, we're going to do it our way because we think our way is better. Turns out they were wrong. It wasn't better. They spent a fortune on this and people would walk away from shows like Secret Invasion going, what the hell was that? They would watch Moon Knight and they'd go, well, a lot of that was good, but some of it wasn't good. And then we've got all the messes where all of the producers and directors, showrunners, whatnot, are going, we don't know if there's going to be a season two because Marvel won't commit. Marvel has just nuked everything from orbit and started from scratch. Starting with Wonder Man, they're guaranteeing the fact that they're going to create more episodes of programs and they're going to give them multiple seasons runs. They're going to allow people to get connected to characters rather than, you know, let's say introducing the Scarlet Scarab or Madison and never seeing them again. They're learning from their mistakes and they're basically acknowledging they're going to create television the way that studios always did for generations now, rather than trying to do their own thing, which has failed both financially and in terms of recent quality. And let's not forget, they're going to air Echo in a couple of months. And by all accounts, that's going to be a disastrous project as well. Yeah, to to unpack that a little bit, it sounds like what Marvel's acknowledging here is that they were too committed to timelines where they had to pump out the content regardless of whether it was going to work or not. We saw that with Falcon and the Winter Soldier where they needed to put that series out regardless and despite the fact that it got severely hampered due to the pandemic. And you saw that in the series where there were clearly massive set pieces that had to be removed from the plot because they just couldn't bring together all the actors they needed in order to be able to produce those massive set pieces. And so the story was disjointed, disconnected a lot like what we saw in Secret Invasion. Now, what Marvel's acknowledging is that we are going to take our time and we are going to make something that makes sense. And if that means the narrative is going to take multiple seasons, then that is what we're going to do. Is is that what I'm understanding here? So a couple of points here. First of all, they're not saying if the narrative requires it. They're saying there's going to be multiple seasons of everything we greenlight. They're basically giving the Apple television guarantee where if you are in charge of a production, you are actually going to know that you can plan for multiple seasons rather than sweating the fact that after six episodes, that might be your only shot. They're also acknowledging something that it's a story I've been covering for a while now, and it's kind of amazing, but it's true. Marvel had used the movie production strategy. And what I mean by that is something I've referenced several times over the years. Nobody in Hollywood cares about writers. It comes across so often, and it is so offensive to me as a writer, but it is the reality of the industry. And a really good example happened with She-Hulk, where Jessica Gao created this absolutely remarkable story about She-Hulk. And then as the showrunner, she creates all of these scripts with these many writers rooms that have now been banished 
due to the uh, most recent writer's agreement. But under the mini writer's room, she creates scripts. And then once they started filming, the director would gain absolute control of the project, which is how movies work. Screenwriters create a story. And then once they get on set, they can't control any of it because the director decides what gets filmed, how the story evolves and what the characters do. Marvel tried that with its stories. And then what often happened is when they got the finished product back, the principal photography filming would show all kinds of gaps because the director did not have the cohesion with the screenwriter that they should have, which led to reshoots after the fact. And so the person who handled the reshoots in a long way was determining the overall output of the products. Marvel has since accepted that works in movies sometimes, maybe not even as well as they think it does lately. With television, you just can't do that. You need one guiding voice. And you know, when we talk about some of the most famous people over the years in Hollywood, they're television producers who have shown that uncanny knack to tell a story over multiple seasons that connects and has a tether to it. So from now on, there's going to be a show creator who does a show Bible with all of the characters, with their backstories and everything. That person will stay connected to the story throughout the entire program run, which, believe it or not, Marvel hadn't been doing until this point, and they've now realized it should have been Jessica Gao all along, and that's something they actually acknowledged because during the reshoots, they brought her back to save that project. Marvel has screwed this up because they were convinced that their way of creating content was the only way, and now during the pandemic and the struggles it's caused, they've accepted the fact they were blowing it and they have to start over again with the accepted principles for decades now. I do want to say that this is a philosophy for Marvel that's going to cut both ways. I think what was exciting about the potential for a series like Secret Invasion is that it had Sam Jackson in the lead. Here is a big movie star actor in a television series reprising his role for six or eight episodes. This new type of multi-series commitment isn't necessarily going to work for like actors like Sam Jackson or Oscar Isaac, who played Moon Knight. On the other hand, if you take someone like Tatiana Maslany, who played She-Hulk, or Charlie Cox, who plays Daredevil, these right now are not necessarily A-list movie stars. And so they're happy to commit to multiple seasons. And so we're more likely to see, let's call them the B tier of Marvel heroes in multiple seasons. And the ones that we've come to recognize as being the A tier of Marvel heroes who show up in the Avengers movies just aren't going to be showing up as frequently in these series. I think that's an interesting point. And it's something that we'll have to watch evolve over time. Personally, what I see is Marvel remains the premier brand. Now, it has been sullied lately. The brand has definitely been damaged. Everyone would acknowledge that. Does it still matter enough that, let's say, Mark Ruffalo, someone who's on the fringe of A-list in Hollywood who will work whenever they want to work, are they willing to commit to 10 episodes of television a year? It depends on the situation. I think it does. I, I hear your concern, but Tom Hiddleston is definitely doing it right now, and I think we all agree. Tom Hiddleston can work whenever he wants. Ewan McGregor just did television with Disney the same way. So it's not like it's a deal breaker. It's just going to require a level of commitment that some people will have to reevaluate. The other thing we should keep in mind is most of the people who are famous now in Marvel role, wouldn't you agree they weren't for the most part that famous until they joined the MCU? Without a doubt. Uh, someone like Chris Evans wasn't necessarily a big movie star until he became Captain America. And look at Robert Downey Jr., who, yes, today is probably one of the top five movie stars of all time. His career was in the dumpster before he came in as Tony Stark. Exactly. So, you know, we're probably talking about 
let's use Robert Redford as an example. Would Robert Redford, somebody like that, come in for four to six episodes of one season of the series? Would they commit to recurring, you know, frequently? And I guess that's the William Hurt question, isn't it? And I think that's a good one. And we probably won't have an answer for that for, what do you think, two and a half, three years to come. But that is definitely one of the stories we're going to track here. What we'd all agree on is Marvel Television on Disney Plus wasn't working to anyone's satisfaction, at least not lately. And it needed a kick in the pants, didn't it? Yeah. And I mean, just to put a point on all of this, I think we could all agree none of this applies to Loki, which is just having a spectacular season two so far. Yes, but it's also been the one that hasn't followed the same pattern as their other shows either. It's a multi-season series. Yeah, very true. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening here is they've realized Loki should be the blueprint for what they're going to do next. It has become the prototype, and they've already said Wonder Man, which is going to tell the story of Simon Williams, is going to follow the same premise. You look at Wonder Man, and it's got legitimately one of the best actors of this generation and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and he is willing to commit to playing this character for multiple episodes for multiple seasons. So that's an encouraging sign in and of itself. And I just think in terms of story, he is the type of actor that will appeal to people to watch season after season. And if we look at really what's happening behind the scenes here, Disney has taken this long to finally get to the place that Netflix was already at with Marvel content. And, you know, that says everything here. This should have been what was happening all along and limited series should have been the exceptions, not the rule. In our rapid fire, one streamer's trash is another streamer's treasure, as shows previously discarded are finding a home elsewhere. Last winter and into the spring, as the reality of the financials involved in transitioning to streaming finally dawned on the studios, the axe started to fall. Streamers determined that it often made more sense to yank a show from their platform and license it to someone else, as it just wasn't a draw for them on their own platform, or oftentimes in the case of shows that they had contracted from other studios, the numbers just didn't add up. So they were canceled or yanked, sometimes before the production even completed. That's what happened with the Jake Johnson comedy Minx on HBO Max, which got the axe as they were wrapping up production on season two. The show was actually produced by Lionsgate, so eventually Minx found its way onto the Lionsgate streaming service, Stars. Max pulled other shows like Westworld that eventually found its way onto the Roku channel and licensed some shows like the Dwayne Johnson vehicle Ballers, which is now on both Max and Netflix. This week, the animated Star Trek series Prodigy, which was yanked after one season on Paramount Plus, was announced to be going to Netflix. And probably the biggest news is that the Spiderwick Chronicles, which was co-produced by 20th Century Television and Paramount Television and was slated for Disney Plus, has found a new home on the Roku channel. And I think the Prodigy part of this conversation is the one that's most intriguing to me personally, because we're talking about a Paramount production. Nothing is more Paramount than Star Trek. And yet here they are deciding we're not moving forward with this. If Netflix wants to create this content, they can pay for it. They can license it for a while. And that is the model for some studios moving forward where they allow somebody else the exclusive rights two, three, five years. And then afterward, they reclaim the content because it's theirs. It's their license to begin with. The only question I have here, and Raul, I think that we're going to explore this over time. Can Netflix keep affording to do this? Is it going to be a case-by-case basis? What are you expecting? here. 
Netflix has no shortage of cash. They can definitely do this if they see in their tables that it's going to be a profitable endeavor for them. They certainly have data that's not visible to anyone else that will tell them what is a success and what isn't a success. If Netflix thinks they can make it work on their platform, they will give it a shot. And it doesn't matter how obscure or how unusual the content is. They spend billions of dollars every year on original content. And for them, it makes sense. So I think... I think Netflix is going to keep doing it so long as it keeps working for them. Is this maybe the beginning of the consolidation of streaming services where we're going back to, yeah, let's just license our content to Netflix or at least, you know, some sort of merger or consolidation? Because I, I think that is due to happen. And this may be the initial steps of content that you would associate with one service now all of a sudden going somewhere else. I think there is a big picture aspect to that because, you know, I just listed an example. Netflix was doing better with Marvel content than Disney Plus has. And that does make you wonder, wait, should we just let them do it and then we take it back later? It's not cut and dried. I think it is going to be situation by situation. In the case of Star Trek Prodigy, it's just so surprising because the one thing Disney said it will never do is it won't sell out Marvel, Pixar, or Star Wars content to anyone else. The basic stuff that is signature Disney, Paramount has just taken the absolute opposite approach. And that shocks me. Yeah, so much for the Star Trek network. I guess the, now that there's going to be at least one property on on Netflix, even though I guess I don't know whether it was not as popular or or considered not not as good as some of the other content they're producing. But yeah, it is it is very weird to have a Star Trek program that will show up on Netflix eventually. It sounds like my kind of decision. Well, I mean, you can have Star Trek, but only if it's Janeway. <laughs> But in this time of turmoil and uncertainty, it looks like streamers are going back to the well for more. This certainly isn't unprecedented in the world of streaming. The streaming era has brought us a welcome resurgence in, as David pointed out, the Star Trek universe. And of course, we have a Monk movie coming to Peacock next month. And the trailer for the Orphan Black Echoes series was released this week. Also this week, it was rumored that NBC Universal is preparing a new spinoff of Suits a series that I believe hasn't aired a new episode in seven years. And Hulu, who just brought all five seasons of Moonlighting to streaming, has announced that they'll be bringing newly remastered 16 by 9 HD episodes of L.A. Law to their streaming platform as well. Wow, HD L.A. Law. Boy, you can really see how nice that conference room looks now. The weirdest of these announcements, though, has to be how Baz Luhrmann has recut his epic movie Australia into a six-part miniseries titled Faraway Downs, which will premiere on Hulu in November. So if you missed it in theaters, and we know you did, you can miss it on Hulu in November. And I really think that's what the missing ingredient with Australia was. It wasn't long enough. We all said that, right? And I'm going to toss in a cancellation here as Apple TV Plus has announced they've canceled the Tiffany Haddish crime series, The After Party, after two seasons. This is relevant here because you may recall that Apple TV Plus doesn't produce any of their own shows. The After Party is produced by Lord and Miller for Sony. And Sony has a strong relationship not only with Apple, but also Netflix. So yes, The After Party has been canceled on Apple TV Plus, but I'm not ruling out that it uh, might one day come to Netflix, maybe even with new episodes. All right, Tim, I do believe we have a box office story this weekend. Uh, yeah, it's it's me. Hi. 
I'm the problem. It's me. Uh, yes, Taylor Swift has single-handedly saved, uh, well, AMC at least, with the Eras Tour concert film. Just a mere $39 million on Friday. That's all. Nothing much. Is is that a lot? That's a lot. Yeah, that's this is going to be the biggest opening that we've seen probably since, oh, geez, what, what was it, Barbenheimer? <laughs> that's $100 million for the weekend at least. Maybe well, more. probably. Probably. I, I did want to say, that actually isn't, this is ridiculous to say, I acknowledge that going in. That is on the low end of estimates, and there has been some hesitation to actually ensure it's going to be a $100 million opener. Now, we all know the way these things work. I think that they're going to do everything they can to say that, but there were some hopes heading up to the weekend they could actually make $130 million. That doesn't appear to be happening. The estimates I'm seeing now are in the 90s and in the low 100s, which is, you know, slightly worse than we'd hoped for a while ago but let's be honest that is just a found money this is yes this is the the actual equivalent you know, finding 20 bucks in, in the pair of pants you were you were wa- uh, washing. It only had 2.8 million on Thursday, which I think that was a very last minute thing. And then realized, oh, wait, we, we should really probably do Thursday, some, some Thursday previews to, to get a couple extra extra dollars. And yeah, it, estimates are, are not what we initially thought when they said, OK, yeah, there's going to be a Taylor Swift concert movie. And we we just like immediately just saw dollar signs everywhere. But I, I think this is this is an event. This is this is people people may see this more than once over the over the course of the weekend. So yeah, if it doesn't come in with a hundred million, I'll be I'll be shocked. Yeah, one thirty is probably crazy at this point with starting with thirty nine million. But but yeah, I, I would be really surprised if it came in under under hundred million. I've seen things on social media where people are just like they're acting like they're actually attending a concert. And then people who, you know, have reverence for say something like stop making sense are like, no, why would you do that? And people are like, no, shut up. Let people have fun at the movies. That's why we go to movies. Did you see the cinema score yet? I did not. Believe it or not, it's an A+. Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> what? You mean, you, mean Taylor, you mean Taylor Swift fans like the Taylor Swift concert movie? I'm, no. I can't, I can't believe it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the whole thing is crazy. I remember when the story broke. I don't like to call out peers, but there was a, a different box office analyst who made the bold prediction. It could do as well an opening weekend as the Miley Cyrus movie, which is a reminder made like <laughs> 31 million. And I remember all of us were just like giggling uncontrollably at the thought of that way to go out of limb. Yes, I predicted mm-hmm. there will be a baseball season next year. That's right. <laughs> I'm willing to say that right now. <laughs> but here we are. And it's gotten so weird that like when it makes a hundred million, it's gonna seem like okay, that's really good, but I'd hope for a little bit more. And that's right. kind of what happened with Harry Potter back in the day as well, where it opened to ninety million, which was, you know, massive total at the time. Yes, million. absolutely. That, I think it was yeah. two thousand and one. Yes. Just earth shattering. And yet we kind of hoped for more because it had gotten so ridiculous. This is just proof that Taylor Swift really is the most popular person on the planet. I mean, like this borders on cult-like behavior that she can just announce, hey, by the way, since you couldn't go to my concert, I filmed it, go to a movie theater instead. And people have done to this degree where it's basically a Marvel movie. It really is. Yeah. uh, Just Friday, the $10,000 per screen average. I mean, it is in over 3,800 theaters, but that's just astounding to see just this, you know, one person, like you said, literally the most famous person on the planet right now. And just to be clear, when we say 10,000, that's just one day for the weekend, it's going to be 30. That's just one day. Yeah. That's just Friday. That's just, that's just Friday. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're recording this on Saturday. We, we, so we only have the Friday info. So we're, we are, you know, guessing slash estimating, but yeah, it's going to be over 30 for, for the weekend. There are three big winners here. One is obviously Taylor Swift, but she doesn't really need the ones at this point. (laughs) 
The second is AMC as a brand because they made this happen and they deserve all the credit for it. We're talking about a company that we have mentioned multiple times during the pandemic was on the brink of financial ruin. And honestly, this fall was shaping up to be a nightmare, wasn't it, Tim? Oh, yeah. it's We haven't really touched on box office too much lately because there hasn't been anything interesting, you know, unless you consider another Exorcist movie opening to, you know, 25 million last weekend but it's been since you know since the barbenheimer craze died down it's just been depressing and there's no not much good news on on the horizon either and and then all of a sudden here we go taylor swift says i'm gonna make a you know put out a a movie and it's bypassing a studio it's you know it's not coming from a studio it's coming from essentially amc so this is just taylor swift's obviously getting the bulk of this money but amc is getting a large chunk of it not having to send it you know send it off to a studio and that's the other thing here the third winner in this are the amc theaters exhibiting in this this weekend because they are selling these popcorn tins they are selling these cups all of these exclusive souvenirs which admittedly came at market pricing nobody's actually an idiot about this stuff when you ask for you know just an onslaught of new cup orders and new you know popcorn tins they're going to charge you more but even at those prices i've seen like drive-in owners saying it basically is bigger than an entire month for them just this one weekend, we were talking mm-hmm. about that type of revenue. And if not for Barbenheimer, this would be one of the worst box office cheers on record in terms of disappointments, films that underachieved relative to expectation. We have those two outliers that are basically lifting up everything else, similar to what happened last year with Top Gun 2. But this, this is basically a life jacket in the ocean. It really is. This is save the people who were on the Titanic, at least for a while. And everyone should always be grateful to Taylor Swift because she did this. That's just the reality of it. Yeah, I even checked the local theater, the theater nearest that I live to, which is not AMC. Yeah, it's it's playing there too. So I, I think they, you know, obviously there aren't 4,000 AMC theaters, so they are spreading it around. But yeah, they're they're getting the the share of it. And it's, it's just the tide lifting all boats right now. And yeah, this these three movies have yeah, saved potentially one of the worst box office years ever, even though we had Super Mario Brothers made 500 million. We had a, a Spider-Man across the, the across the Spider-Verse sequel made, you know, 381 million. We had Guardians of the Galaxy 3. But yeah, we needed that extra billion plus just to make sure that this wasn't a terrible, terrible year for movies. All right. Now that Taylor Swift has ruled our podcast, just as she's ruled everything else. Let's talk about the ratings, Tim. Um, surprisingly little Taylor Swift content here, but but we'll, we'll try. Uh, this is, these are the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, September 11th to Sunday, September 18th, 2023. Uh, and for the first time in quite some time, I can say the top overall show is something on the originals chart. And that, of course, is Virgin River. With a little over 2 billion minutes for 52 episodes for the first full week of its release of its 10 episodes this season. And because that's never all there is with Netflix's biggest hits, there will be two more holiday-themed episodes arriving on November 30th. And yes, before the strikes, Netflix went ahead and gave this a sixth season a few months ago. Six seasons on Netflix. You have to be absolutely massive for that to happen. I'm trying to decide. Do we think there's even been 10 shows that have had that many seasons? Not counting like animated things. I I really doubt it. Right. I, I know that we were talking about, I don't know how many adult education is actually up to, but uh, I was joking with Cameron the other day. If you still needed education after this many episodes, you're never going to get it. Uh, <laughs> this is along those lines where it just keeps getting renewed. And that is so un-Netflix like that it's like, you know, it's basically like an NFL player making it 15 years. I can't imagine how it happens, you know? Right. The, the joke always was, oh, you know, 
two seasons out or three seasons out with Netflix because then the show starts to cost them more. But this, I mean, clearly, you know, we only have the small piece, but even cracking two billion on these ratings is is amazing. So I and imagine there is a ton of second screen viewing for this show. So they're like, sure, we'll go ahead, make more. We'll pay for it. Dear Child, we saw arrive last week, 720 million minutes for six episodes in second, while previous originals leader One Piece is in third, 663 million minutes for eight episodes. Uh, Ahsoka from Disney Plus is up to fourth, 577 million minutes for five episodes. That's a little bit of a jump from last week, and I do expect that momentum to continue now through the rest of the season. Two other also weekly releases at an episode as Hulu's Own Murders in the Building is fifth, 456 million minutes, and Prime Video's Wheel of Time is sixth, 423 million minutes for 13 episodes. Returning seventh is Glow Up from Netflix, 399 million minutes. This is the British makeup artist competition show, now with five seasons of eight episodes each. It arrived a few months ago on the BBC, and then Netflix picks it up for distribution in the US. The fifth season arrived on Netflix on the 12th. All right, so in eighth, um, I, I guess I can't really make fun of Apple TV Plus anymore. I mean, after previously only making the Nielsen ratings with Ted Lasso, they finally made it onto the movies chart earlier this year with Ghosted. And then a few weeks ago, we saw Hijack. And now, finally, here is what was supposed to be their flagship program when Apple TV Plus launched, The Morning Show. 22 episodes, 350 million minutes viewed. The first two episodes of the third season arrived on September 13th. No, that that's wrong, Tim. Apple TV Plus doesn't get onto the ratings. <laughs> oh, so you're saying I can still make fun of them? <laughs> yes. Roll okay. doesn't believe. Tap the sign. Roll. Tap it. <laughs> yeah, I had I went and double checked, and yes, this was the show that also launched uh, was November 1st, 2019, which is the day Apple TV Plus launched. This was supposed to be their their big hook to get you to to subscribe and. It was just kind of there, and then it got you know taken over by Ted Lasso mania. Well, well deserved, of course. Uh, but then finally, now with the third season, yeah, and he, he, here it is. They have paid a hefty price for those three hundred and forty-nine million minutes. <laughs> they but, have. Yes. I'm sorry, three hundred and fifty million. But you know, here we are, and it's pretty good. And I also think they did a nice job of redeeming the show somewhat in season two, and maybe this will become a pattern moving forward because it is a better show now than it used to be. And it is weekly from here, so I, I am curious to see if it will will stick around through the season as it adds episodes. Maybe just by sheer virtue of there just being enough content now, which is generally why we see shows with more episodes on these lists. Futurama is ninth from Hulu, 143 episodes, 349 million minutes. I'm curious if we'll see the show continue to make sporadic appearances when there aren't new episodes. They do go through most of October, I believe. I like how we have the Moana line on the movies chart. Do we now have the Futurama line? Like there's just, it's always in that, going to be in that next 10. And then if it's a, not a great week at the bottom of the chart, we'll see it. I mean, we do see the Simpsons occasionally on the acquired chart. That's kind of where I'm at with this. It has me confused. We actually haven't seen the Simpsons in a little while. I was thinking about this. It has been a while, yes. And because acquired has gotten more challenging to actually crack the top 10, the the point of entry is higher. Uh, Originals wraps up with Spy Ops, a docuseries from Netflix, 288 million minutes for eight episodes. It arrived on the 8th. But the real action this week is on the movies chart, led by Disney Plus and Elemental, coming in with 1.7 billion minutes viewed after arriving on streaming on September 13th. Hey, remember when everyone called this one a failure? Who's laughing I, now, bitches? <laughs> me. My hand is raised. I am the one laughing. I told everyone who would listen, this is a much better film than anyone realizes. Kim and I were first on that wall, weren't we, Kim? 
Yes, it's such a delight. And we were saying it, and I'm very happy to see that it had a better box office life than anybody anticipated. And now I could see it, you know, joining Coco and some of the other recent Pixar films on the evergreen chart here. That's good. They they did say this was their biggest Disney Plus animated release since I think going back to Turning Red. So there were a few in the in the middle there, especially some that were in theaters and then went went to Disney Plus. Everyone hated on it after that opening weekend, but it, it stuck it out. It it stayed on course and turned into a box office success. And now this is a big streaming success. Oh, I think there's a real chance we get Elemental 2 now. And I think that there is a chance that we get an Elemental theme park presence mm. because what matters the most is it's really good. And for whatever reason, nobody wanted to talk about that at the start. But now the word has gotten around. And let me tell you, this is the most popular Pixar film ever in South Korea. Just as an example, it did extraordinarily well in some markets that Disney doesn't always crack. This is a universal title. It could hang around in pop culture for ages. It really could. Definitely need to watch this at some point now that it's on Disney+. Plus. They also have the second movie this week, The Little Mermaid, 588 million minutes. So very good week for them. Yeah, I actually uh, mentioned this the other day to somebody else. Disney's two films earn more viewing minutes than the rest of the top 10 combined. So it was mm-hmm. that kind of week for them. Yep. It's a big drop off after, after these two for the movie's chart, but a big week for Disney. Because uh, also new in third, though, is... Fast X, the most recent Fast and Furious movie and a theatrical release earlier this year. And of course, because it's a universal franchise, it's on Peacock. It's about family. <laughs> for now, anyway. But it arrives in their 272 million minutes, which gets the not bad for Peacock asterisk. Uh, for some reason, Woody Woodpecker is still here in fourth, 260 million minutes, while new in fifth is Love at First Sight, 233 million minutes, the rom-com from Netflix that arrived on September 15th. Our Moana line this week is 219 million minutes in sixth place. So after a big start with the Disney movies, see, clearly it's a big drop off from there. Seventh is something new from Prime Video, A Million Miles Away, 216 million minutes. This is a biopic about Jose Hernandez, a Mexican-American astronaut. That arrived on the 15th, played by uh, Michael Pena, I believe. Yeah, this one definitely had a theatrical feel to it, so mm-hmm. uh, so good for it. Yeah. Uh, Peacock Super Mario Brothers movie is 8th, 196 million minutes, while new in ninth from Prime Video is Kelsey, 179 million minutes viewed, and probably a lot of disappointed viewers that Taylor Swift is not in it. But now we can have a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> That was some very good timing by just whoever decided to make this. Yes, there's two brothers. Yes, the, you know, the one dating Taylor Swift and, of course, you know, the other one who also plays in the NFL. That's why they made this. But now that he's the, the most famous football player is now dating the most famous woman on the planet. I am sure they can just they can make more. Yeah. <laughs> Surely this was not all orchestrated by an agent, right? <laughs> The real story is that Pat Mahomes went from being the most famous player in the league to the second most famous player on his team. His team, yes. I've seen that movie and it ends with treachery. So I'm looking forward to that part of this drama, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Movies wraps up with The Wolf of Wall Street from Paramount Plus and Netflix, which, yep, came to Netflix on September 12th. And that's why it's here. Acquired is 10 shows we have, of course, seen before, but I will note that Suits is finally under the 2 billion mark, only 1.9 billion, which is why it wasn't the top overall show anymore, thanks to Virgin River. Other than that, yeah, that's uh, that's it for the ratings. Nothing else on the Acquired really worth worth talking about. But yeah, big week for uh, Disney Plus and Elemental. I do look forward to it. You know, it's going to slide down the chart, but I do look forward to it hanging around for a long time. Thanks, Tim. 
right, as always, we close out with what's been keeping us busy over the past week. And I have been watching season one of Schitt's Creek, which I've never watched before. Despite finding the first episode super annoying, it definitely has grown on me after that. Dan Levy is absolutely a treasure. Everybody in the cast is just having a terrific time. And I'd forgotten that Tim Rozon, who had been in Winona Earp, is also in this. I like him a lot and like him in this role as well. I am almost through season one and will probably just keep at my approximately episode or two a day pace until I watch the whole thing. Schitt's Creek is playing on both Hulu and Amazon Freebie. Raul, how about you? I started watching The Fall of House of Usher on Netflix this week. I was high on Mike Flanagan's horror series after seeing The Haunting of Hill House. And I'm not even a horror fan, but Flanagan's second series on Netflix, The Haunting of Bly Manor, was an unequivocal miss. After that, I didn't bother. But given the source material and the cast for Usher, I thought I had to commit. I made it through three episodes and I expect I will wrap it up this weekend, but it's been very disappointing throughout. Bruce Greenwood is great in the lead and I'm happy to see Mark Hamill as the nasty lawyer, but there's little in the way of horror here and the narrative just leaves me flat. After watching those three episodes, I was left wondering why I wasn't watching Our Flag Means Death on Max instead. So I switched to that and suddenly I felt joy again. It's hard to really explain this series without spoiling that it amounts to a comedy about pirates in love. With Reese Darby and Taika Waititi as the pirates in love, the comedy here is is inevitable, but true to any work involving Watiti, the subtlety and nuance is just below the surface. There's jokes about safe spaces and people dealing with trauma, but then there's actually scenes of people dealing with trauma in a safe space. To demonstrate this, I point to the character of Izzy, who was essentially the villain in season one. In three scenes, he exemplifies this series. In the first, he stands up for his downtrodden and abused crew. It's just a rousing and stirring moment. In another, a gift brings him and me to tears. And in a third scene, a gunshot is more shocking and devastating than anything I saw in the fall of the House of Usher. Just the very possibility that Izzy may have died just, just shattered me. And yet there's gut-busting laughs at every turn. The series just works at every level. It is delightful. It is joy. It is funny. It is devastating. And it is just astounding. I love Our Flag Means Death. Season two is airing new episodes on Max right now, and I wholeheartedly recommend it. Okay, Tim, how about you? I've been very busy, but I'm actually recording this from my parents' house, so I'd like to donate my time to a very special guest. Guys, please meet my mother. Oh, hi. Hi, Tim's mom. Hi, mom. That is wonderful. Talking, talking to the microphone. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Tell, tell them how wonderful I am. Oh, tell tell a, her he really is. Tell her, tell, tell, no, tell her how wonderful I am. <laughs> I just did. <laughs> so, mom, uh, hey, what have you been watching? Me? I just finished watching the three-part Continental. <gasps> it was wonderful. Nice. <laughs> Great. It was better than John Wick 4. Yes, she was. <laughs> she's a huge John Wick fan. And actually, she was very disappointed by the fourth one. But then I showed her the Continental trailer, and she was super excited. Mm. And, and she very much enjoyed it. Awesome. Which is your favorite John Wick? I like the original, the first one. Oh, okay. Did you find with the Continental that maybe they just had too many characters? Mm, not really. The, pol no. the police detectives in particular seem to have no relevance to the series. Oh, that's true, but it was it was so enjoyable. Sure. <laughs> Don't be a hater, Roll. 
<laughs> Thanks, Mom. Love you. Thanks, Mom. Nice to meet you. All right. And David, how about you? So I watched baseball this week and I don't want to talk about it because it's too soon <laughs> and I'm pretending it never happened. So I do want to talk about something else that Kim and I have watched that I really enjoy. There is a YouTube channel called Diva La Dirt League, and we kind of stumbled on it by accident, which often happens on YouTube. There is an NPC man gimmick that they do. And the idea is imagine what it's like to actually live as a non-player character in a game that includes NPCs. First of all, I should say the channel is several years old, which means there's a treasure trove of entertainment you can discover. Um, we actually liked it so much we subscribed to the their Patreon. The jokes they do, like there was one where there was a file update within the game and suddenly he had a wife and the NPC is at first very confused. She keeps asking him questions about, do you remember our wedding day? He doesn't remember any of this. And then by the end of the two minutes, he's head over heels in love with her. It's the greatest thing in his life. He's no longer alone as an NPC. And then they do an update and she vanishes again. And they're like, we apologize. We have written out in the game notes that he shouldn't have had a wife. He should be lonely and miserable. Our bad. And he keeps the memory of his wife and so it's just eternal torture these are the little gimmicks that when i describe them maybe they're not as good but if you watch them they're hysterical there was another one where uh, one of the women playing the game tries to get armor and when she wants a man's armor it's like this giant ridiculous thing of uh, metal that you know covers the entire body and when she gets it in women's it's just little chain links that don't hide much at all and it's a recurring thing she's always trying to get the men's armor and instead they make it sexy, which she doesn't want. Little jokes like this that I just love. And Kim, I know that you're addicted to it too. It's charming, isn't it? Yes, we laugh at it a lot. It's funny and fun and relatable. I would say you probably have to have at least a passing familiarity with playing video games to laugh at some of the jokes, but still very good fun. So that's what I've been up to. And by the way, baseball sucks and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to being a Mets fan. <laughs> Except you guys make the playoffs all the time. Yeah. We had historically the greatest offense of all time. I'm not complaining by any stretch, okay? Except except for four games that just happened to be the playoffs, yeah. Nah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That's why baseball, baseball is the best. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Be sure to watch for us again next week. 